1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerota. Welcome to CNN Tonight. The ousted Tennessee state rep, Justin Jones, tonight is reinstated. He was just expelled on Thursday for protesting inside the chamber and demanding action on gun reform after that school shooting in Nashville that killed three nine-year-olds and three adults.
2: Today, we're
3: sending a resounding message that democracy will not be killed in the comfort of silence.
1: Then this morning, yet another mass shooting. A 25-year-old gunman opened fire inside the bank where he worked in Louisville, Kentucky, killing five people and injuring at least eight others. A source says his weapon of choice was an AR-15-style rifle. We'll talk about how credit card companies could help crack down on mass shootings, but why they're not. And one of the most admired spiritual leaders in the world issues an apology after a video goes viral showing the Dalai Lama asking a young boy to suck his tongue.
2: And suck my tongue.
1: (laughs) We'll have much more on all of that ahead, but let's bring in our panelists. We have with us, Jay Michelson, he's a rabbi, a Buddhist and a columnist for Rolling Stone. We have Jessica Washington, senior reporter for The Root. Evan Siegfried is a Republican strategist, and Michael Moynihan is co-host of the Fifth Column Podcast. Guys, great to have you here. Great to have you joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. Jay, let's just start with another uh, mass shooting. We can't catch our breath between them anymore. They're now, we report on them at least once a week. Um, This one is a 25-year-old who was apparently going to be fired from his job at a bank, Uh, You know, back in our day, that would maybe warrant punching the wall or maybe punching someone. But with access to guns, it's changed the entire equation.
2: Yeah, I just just I can't believe this keeps happening. And here we are yet again talking about it. You know, I just have the one question. I understand, you know, I'm a a former lawyer, former law professor. I understand the Second Amendment. I just wonder if anyone can really believe that this is what the founders wanted that this is possibly what they intended. The Second Amendment written about muskets and militias and now being used as a pretext to do nothing about these weapons, which in the hands of people, whether they're mentally ill or just angry or whatever, are just killing Americans. And it just is unconscionable to me that we could really believe that this is what the founders intended. Jessica, one of the remarkable
1: things is how many lives these mass shootings touch. And so today, the governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir, lost his closest friend in this shooting. And he talked about it on camera right after the news broke.
4: We lost four children of God today, one of whom was one of my closest friends. Tommy Elliott helped me build my law career, helped me become governor, gave me advice on being a good dad. He's one of the people I talk to most in the world and very rarely. Where are we talking about my job? He was an incredible friend.
1: Last week, it was the first lady of Tennessee, her friend, who she was having dinner with, supposed to be having dinner with that night, was one of the substitute teachers who was killed in that mass shooting. Today, the mayor of Louisville said that he himself had been in a workplace mass shooting shooting this is suddenly our universal experience the one thing that unites all americans is that they now know somebody who's connected to a mass shooting
5: No, it's true. I mean, this is an issue that is touching so many different lives. And I'm not a politician. My job isn't to come up with policy, but I am a person who can look and see what's happening and see that something's broken when it has touched so many people's lives. I mean, gun deaths are the leading cause of death among children and teens. I mean, just that fact alone. And that's not necessarily just related to these assault weapons. That's other issues as well. But just the fact that so many children, so many adults, so many people's lives have just been forever changed by guns, it's a clear indicator that something's not working.
1: Evan, you've been on with me when this has happened before, and we've talked about how we're searching for solutions, and is there anything that could break the impasse? And I was so fascinated to read today that the credit card companies had a plan. I'll read it to you. Visa, MasterCard, and Discover this month paused a plan to implement a new merchant category code for the nation's gun retailers after political pressure from Republicans. The measure was designed to help flag potential mass shooters and gun traffickers. But two dozen Republican attorneys general warned the credit card companies that they should not go ahead with their plans. The Republican officials said that adopting a new sales code for gun stores would harm the constitutional rights of gun owners. In other words, they could have flagged when somebody was gun shopping, you know, when somebody was um, compiling an arsenal of guns, they could have flagged something like that. Or even if just one person went into a gun shop and didn't seem right to that gun seller, but yet we're not taking those steps.
3: I think those Republicans' attorneys general have uh, lost sight of what Republicans used to have on the Second Amendment. In Chief Justice Berger, who was appointed by Richard Nixon, he actually said that gun regulation and gun safety measures are very smart. And it used to be, in Republican policy, that we would have a pro-Second Amendment position that went hand-in-hand hand with gun safety. We've left the safety part out. And I think it's embarrassing. I'm also very worried that we were becoming numb as a society to these happening day in, day out, and it's just now sort of, oh, uh, another shooting. Uh, and that should not be the way we act nationally. And then lastly, I think that we are really not, or as Jessica came on and talked about, gun deaths are now the leading cause of death for children. But Pew Research also released a more detailed study that said if you are a black youth, you are five times more likely to be killed by a gun than any other demographic. And of black youths who are uh, are killed by guns, 80% are by murder, whereas white youths, 66% of gun deaths, suicide. And there is something really bad going on in this country, and we're not addressing it.
4: Michael, your thoughts? You know, it's funny that you say that. It, had I not been coming here tonight, I would not have read this story. I'm being totally honest with you because it happens so frequently. I have a 12 year old. I find these stories so unbelievably grim and unbelievably hopeless because there's things on every I did a story one time on red flag laws in Washington state. And one of the people opposing these in Washington state at the time, this probably about four or five years ago, was the local ACLU. Because of civil liberties concerns of people, you know, having a constitutional right taken away from them by a judge who is you know, saying if they're sane or not, or they're being you know, told that there's a crazy person in the house by a spurned. ex, All of these things that happen make these things that seem like we can actually do something. It's very, very hard to do that, mostly because of the constitutional issue, as, as you were saying, but, but also that there's all these other things, too, that you know, ab, you know, are bridging people's first amendment right. And until you abridge that in the court, it makes it, it makes it rather difficult.
1: But I totally understand what you're saying. It's not that yeah. you're numb to it. We have to turn away for it, for our mental health. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that you can choose to read it or not read it, of course you can't read every, about every single mass shooting day.
2: And, yeah, when we become numb, we dull our moral instincts, right? We dull our human capacities for compassion and for care and for empathy. And these are the capacities which enable us to live together uh, across the various divides that we have. So it's incredibly worrying, in addition to the tragedy of the gun violence itself, the secondary tragedy of what this does to us as human beings.
1: Another thing that could help, because, again, I'm just looking for solutions, as we do every single week here. If Congress isn't going to, the five of us are going to have to figure it out, um, is is holding parents responsible. I mean, we've seen that in – so in Michigan, in the Oxford case with Ethan Crum, Crumsley, his parents were appear, – it appears to be wildly reckless in terms of knowing that he was disturbed and ha- giving him access. So they're being charged. And now in the case with the six-year-old in Newport News, Virginia – the six-year-old who brings the gun to school and shoots a teacher, that mother is being charged with felony child neglect.
5: Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, just looking at that case, I don't know that we can fix these systemic issues by putting that kid's parent in, in jail. I just don't know. I'm not saying that that's not the right move. I'm saying that I don't know that it is. I mean, we have a serious problem in this country where there are so many guns unlocked in the homes with children. I think but about- doesn't
1: this send a message to parents to be more careful?
5: I think maybe there are also other ways than necessarily taking away this child's parent that could also be potentially used. I think there are ways to, you know, maybe licensing, making that more of a priority. I'm not saying that necessarily this is the wrong move. I'm just saying I don't know if locking up one parent is a solution to, I want to say, 4.6 million children living in homes with unlocked firearms.
3: I was going to say that I think one of the things... We can do is the president today came out and he said he wanted to have safe storage laws. I think that they're a good idea, but they're unenforceable because it would. How do you really go out and logistically do that and without a warrant? And that gets into constitutional questions. Wait, there's
2: like if. if- if, if gun owners and the majority of gun owners are people with respect for law, right, I'm going to just postulate that, then they will obey the law. It's not just a question of enforceability. Well, it's also like if you want to be a law-abiding, it used to be having a gun was a responsibility. This was part of the family heritage if it was a hunting rifle. And this was part of what it meant to be a responsible citizen. So I don't know if that, if that well, enforceability it, it, no, issue is going to Where I'm going with this is I think there's
3: a better way where we can if we start partnering because it's clear that Congress is not going to act. So we have to. And we have to partner with more pro-gun groups because there are a lot of groups that are not called the NRA who do believe in gun safety and believe that we should be training people to be responsible gun owners. And if we were to get people who are pro-gun able to influence within the community, hey, let's do safe storage. Hey, why don't we go out and do reduced magazine capacity and get that and have it happen without having to enact laws, that might be more successful. At this point, it's worth trying because uh, we might as well do something other than sit on our hands.
1: I mean, this was also, I guess, a permitless carry state, mm. Kentucky, so you don't need a permit. And maybe you don't you don't need a permit to carry a concealed weapon, mm. number one. And number two, you they might have done away with a training component even. I mean, I, I, many states have that where they do away. You know, if, if you're going to buy a gun, why not at least have somebody have to be trained or go... You know, refresh your license from so, yeah. you know. From it, time and to
4: time. It's an important point that most gun owners are, I mean, the vast majority are responsible. I once interviewed uh, uh, some people at a gun club in New Hampshire, and they, people, all the people in the club were opposing open carry. They said, you know, we don't want to look like wackos. We're not wackos. We use these as a, as a utility. Whereas we're, you know, we're farmers. We do it for sport, et cetera. We don't want to seem like, you know, Ted Nugent or something. But these things, as far as, like, you know, locking up guns, et cetera, my fear about this stuff is not only that they won't work, is that it's, we're so obsessed with gesture politics when it comes to guns because when you see that there's not much you can do because, you know, there are more guns than there are people in America... It's a pretty astonishing it is. number, right? I mean, we're at the 340 million people, or we're something. Guns, yeah. 400 million guns. So the one thing when people say we have to do away with guns, no, that's not going to happen. Of
1: course, but I don't know anybody so what we, who says we have
4: to do away I, with guns. I mean, there are a lot actually. People so, that. Such uh, as? Yeah, I mean, people out there that. I mean, the idea that we have to eliminate private gun sales. What do we do about the stuff that's out there already? But, 400 million guns. If if criminals are going to want them at that point, there's enough out there in circulation that any production of new guns isn't going to matter.
2: Michael, this feels like a straw man. I mean, we know what the agenda is. Like that, we're saying we we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. We know exactly what to do. The Supreme Court has said that uh, an assault reference ban would be within the ambit of the Second Amendment. That's that's the Supreme Court. It's not the formal holding of a case, but that's Supreme Court dicta. We understand what we can do with magazine with magazine limits. We understand some, what we can do. I I would say again with safe storage. It's not that—I don't, I don't, I don't know anybody who's saying, you know, take away all the guns. That's sort of—to me, that's sort of a right-wing talking point more than anything else. But what we have now is so far from that where we have members of Congress, you know, uh, posing with, with assault weapons with their kids. That's, to me, the opposite of responsible gun and what ownership. What
4: does one do about 400 million guns in America, though, if we don't take them away? If there's no gun requisitioning, what does one do?
2: I think there's a lot of space between where we are now and between solving that problem. So, to me, a lot of what we do about those guns are ensuring that we have a gun culture that's responsible rather than lawless. Again, Christmas cards with your, with your kids and your guns. That, to me, does not seem to be inculcating values of responsibility. And to me, that feels like a a direct line from behavior like that to careless behavior on the part of parents having guns that the children can access. So to me, to answer your question directly, that's where we work on the culture. But in the meantime, there's so much that could be done legislatively if we didn't have this bizarre paranoia about gun culture in this country. I mean, it's, it, I, I'm not a doctor, but it, it feels almost like a mental illness, this idea that they're coming for our guns, that, that my, my, my personhood or my masculinity is invested in my gun. These are bizarre points of view. Well, friends, we have to leave it there,
1: but I do think that there is something connected to mental health. The fact that there are so many shootings is creating a, di- a different mental health problem than what you're talking about, but for sure it's causing everyone lots of stress, particularly about their kids. Um, just ahead, the governor of Texas moving to expedite a pardon for a man who was just convicted of murdering a Black Lives Matter protester. We're going to dig into the case and what's motivating the governor to overturn a jury verdict. A Texas man just convicted of murder on Friday could be pardoned any day now. The state's Republican governor, Greg Abbott, is considering pardoning Daniel Perry. He's an army sergeant and Uber driver who in 2020, during the Black Lives Matter protests in Austin, posted online that he might, quote, kill a few people on his way to work. He was found guilty of shooting and killing Garrett Foster, a protester, at a Black Lives Matter demonstration. Perry was convicted by a jury But the chairman of the Republican Party in Texas did not agree with that verdict and told the governor that a pardon was, quote, in order. The next day, Governor Abbott announced that's what he would do. Back now with our panel, we're also joined by CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. Joey, what are we missing here? How can we see this in any other way than through a political lens?
6: I think it's very difficult to see it in any other way, and it's troubling and It just is, I won't even say baffling, but it just sends a wrong message at a wrong time. You know, we have a process, and certainly trials are contentious, and during those contentious trials, both sides get to air the issues. Even before that, Allison, you have something called jury selection, where you assemble a jury of your peers, and both sides, prosecution and defense, have an opportunity to pick the jurors they believe to be most suited to hear the evidence. After that, there's opening statements where there are narratives from both sides with respect to what they believe the evidence will show. There a ton of witnesses, cross-examination, you're allowed, you know, fair and full opportunity to voice all those issues and concerns. And then we have a jury instructed as to the law, in this case, stand your ground, meaning you have no duty to retreat in the event you feel you're in imminent fear of death, or serious bodily injury. You can use force, proportionate to whatever threat is posed, right, can't shoot someone for punching you, and that you act reasonably. A jury then, after eight days, goes and they hear... Hear everything. They deliberate for 17 hours. Comes back guilty of murder. And now, based upon a narrative, which apparently the governor has bought into, he wasn't at the trial, by the way. Right. Didn't sit through the testimony of the trial, by the way. Didn't hear the compelling arguments of both sides, by the way. Now says there's nothing to see. What does it do to the credibility of our system? What does it do to the notions of fairness? What does it do to the fact that there are so many others before the court where there's injustices that they want to right wrongs? They don't get tweets from a governor that says, we're pardoning you and there's nothing to see. So it's disturbing. It's troubling. And it's just uh, it's a. Uh, incredibly wrong message
1: to send. I mean, Evan, this isn't somebody who's being pardoned from a death sentence. This isn't somebody who's served, you know, decades and decades and the governor feels it's time to... to, He's paid his price to society, his debt to society. This is somebody who was just convicted on Friday and he's going to... The the governor wants to pardon him. I mean, isn't that nullifying a jury's verdict?
3: He's convicted on a Friday afternoon. Almost instantly, the right-wing social media... Activates says he was protecting himself from a BLM protester who pointed a rifle at him. OK, but he hasn't been sentenced yet. And if the governor wants to pardon him, he should, but he should do it the right way, which is to have his pardon board go over the trial, look to see if there's any exculpatory evidence. And at the same time, Remember, the defendant can appeal this verdict as well. He hasn't exhausted any of his appeals. This is a much more nakedly political move, which I think sends a very chilling message of if you go out and you uh, feel that you might be in danger from a protester, yeah, you can shoot them. But the other thing is what actually happened leading up, the narrative as we understand it is he had a passenger, he finished his fare, dropped them off, and then drove toward... The the protesters. And the the, the stand-your-ground law is nullified when you go looking for a fight.
1: That's a great point. He also posted on his own socials, in his own words, this is the person who's been convicted of murder. Number one, quote, I might have to kill a few people on my way to work. They are rioting outside of my apartment complex. And number two, I might go to Dallas to shoot looters. Um, Jessica, here is what the prosecutor... Um, who prosecuted this case, just said in the past hour on CNN, listen to this.
3: By making this announcement, um, the governor has undermined the rule of law in the state of Texas, and he has made our community less safe. Um, Every single day here in Travis County, we hold people accountable who commit acts of gun violence. We are going to continue to hold people accountable who commit acts of gun violence, And obviously if the governor wants to continue to pardon people who commit acts of gun violence, that's up to him. But there is no doubt in my mind that it makes our community less safe.
5: Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it does seem like the message is that this was a Black Lives Matter protester and therefore it was okay. We've seen, obviously, a huge backlash on the right against Black Lives Matter protesters, kind of this idea that, you know, they are enacting violence and therefore it is okay to enact violence against them. And so I think this definitely sends a message. Whether or not you agree with the pardon or even how it was done, it obviously seems to be a political message that is Black Lives Matter protesters, you know, we're enacting violence and anything that you do is just defending yourself. And I think that's pretty terrifying for the idea of peaceful protests in the United States. In fact, Kyle Rittenhouse was a big supporter and defender of this guy during the
1: trial. Okay.
2: Yeah, if I could just disagree slightly with the district attorney who said this is within the governor's rights. As as Evan pointed out, this was a massive abuse of of the pardon power. The pardon power exists for cases of miscarriage of justice after all of the remedies have been exhausted, after some time has passed, and with a process in place. This is authoritarian. And I'm not one to sort of ring the you know, authoritarianism bell a lot, but to simply take after the legal process, as, as you laid it out, as the legal process has gone, run its course, to simply say no and to throw it out. I mean, to me, the only open question here is whether Greg Abbott actually believes this. I mean, I almost hope that he just is doing this as a nakedly cynical power grab to pander it to his base. It's chilling to think that because of the narratives that he's imbibed and because of the ideology that he has that he can't, actually see this case objectively, that he can't see that this is a criminal matter and that the, and that the process needs to run its course. That, to me, is, is terrifying.
1: Yeah, I mean, Republicans, Joey, as you know, have been decrying political persecutions. You know, all last week we were hearing about how they're so angry with Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, this DA who they, they think that uh, is only pursuing and investigating Donald Trump because of politics this is even after the what we're talking about now is after, as you say, an entire jury heard it. For weeks, a jury of his peers, that's how it is supposed to work in our country.
6: It's supposed to work that way. And when you say that it's supposed to work, one of the good things you would think about the court system and structure is that it would be devoid of political considerations, that a jury trial would be about a factual determination being rendered by a jury after hearing the facts, the evidence and the circumstances. And then you have a governor weigh in and say nothing to see here. We'll just nullify that. I know it was eight days, multiple witnesses, experts, everything was aired. But you know what? I listened to that radio show. It wasn't a news program that talked about this issue. uh, And it said that perhaps there was a miscarriage of justice from their perspective. So I'm going to overturn that. Just a a horrific message, uh, Allison. And I think that for all those who want to buy into a system that they believed worked, it really says it doesn't work unless you're rich, powerful, connected, and know the governor. And further proof of it being a political move was the governor's own statement. He said
3: something to the effect of, I'm going to defend the Stand Your Ground law. And then he attacked the DA as a woke DA. And I believe he even threw in a Soros reference and Soros backing. Right. That tells you everything. He didn't have a, OK, well, in the trial, it turns out somebody lied on the stand. Or there was some DNA evidence, and I think the jury got it wrong. It doesn't point to any of that.
1: Really interesting. Thank you all very much for that. Meanwhile, more legal trouble for Donald Trump, the former president, is expected back in New York this week to sit for a deposition in a civil trial. This is not the Stormy Daniels case. This is a different one about how the Trump organization reportedly cooked their books. We'll discuss that next
5: terrible. <laughs> but <laughs>
1: you're a fan of it? They are, you know, sort of a fan. They're very good fans. I hate to interrupt you guys. Uh, former President Donald Trump set to face another legal battle this week. This time, it's for a civil lawsuit filed by New York Attorney General Letitia James. Multiple sources tell CNN that Donald Trump will sit for a deposition on Thursday. The lawsuit alleges that Trump, three of his adult children, and the Trump organization defrauded lenders, insurers, and other entities. For more than a decade. My panel is back. Michael, I wouldn't blame you or our viewers for struggling to keep up with the various <laughs> Trump legal challenges because
2: are I have <laughs> no. <laughs>
4: the, I can't. I can't. There, what do we have? We have Georgia.
1: That one is this, easy to remember. That one's easy
4: to remember. Yes. January 6th easy is to easy to remember. But this one
1: came out of nowhere. This one.
4: I just feel like he's been facing tax charges since he was 25. It's just for some reason, none of them is stuck. But yeah, no, I mean, the the question of all these things is it doesn't have any effect on Donald Trump and the polls. And what's the answer? uh, Absolutely not. I mean, we saw this bounce after, you know, showing up in in lower Manhattan. You know, Ron DeSantis was, you know, not, not narrowing the gap, but it was pretty competitive. Donald Trump has overtaken him in Florida where DeSantis, and that is all in the week after this.
2: But you think
1: that's durable, or you think that that's a spike because I don't think any of angry. it's durable.
4: And, you know, Ron DeSantis hasn't run a campaign yet, so I think that, you know, hasn't announced. So I think that, you know, he's going to get some competition there, because, you know, he's Trumpy, but, you know, semi-coherent, unlike Donald Trump, who's Trumpy and not coherent. But, yeah, I don't know if it's going, going to last, but the thing about it is, is that it, the guy lost two elections, this is the hardest thing to do when you talk to Trump voters, which I spend a lot of time doing, is you say, how do you want to hitch your wagon to this man who lost a, an election in 2020? And what do they say? What do they say? No, he didn't. It's impossible to argue with people like this. They say, they, actually, the, the, the base actually thinks, no, no, he, he really did win this, so we should back him again. So I don't think it, this stuff has any effect on him, because he's been sort of Teflon so far.
2: This is why we call a cult of personality a cult. I mean, this is now it is a a cultic religious belief at this point. And Politico did a few good pieces on this last year around the cult of personality around Donald Trump. And, you know, it it is helpful to look at this as a kind of new religious movement or as a a cult where there's this charismatic figure and control of information is regulated so that you only get information that that agrees with uh, with this point of view. And although I I guess I would, I would only quibble on where that bounce is, right? So most, most Americans are not in the cult. And the more it becomes clear that this is kind of a bizarre, strange phenomenon of, you know, this 15 to 20 percent or so who are the true believers. Uh, I'm not sure that bounce actually helps in a general election the way that it clearly has already helped in the primary.
1: Well, speaking of Trump um, voters, Frank Luntz, pollster, friend of our show, um, sat down with his focus group of Trump voters, and he heard something different this time. I mean, basically, they were telling them what they, I think, what he, what they wish about Donald Trump and why they're struggling. And so I have a couple, he wrote a New York Times op-ed uh This weekend, and he says here, I'll just quote some of the things that Frank Luntz reports. They said, "quote They love their grandchildren, so speak specifically about the grandkids and their grandparents will listen as well." We mistake loud for leadership, condemnation for commitment. The values we teach our children should be the values we see in our president. Frank is basically giving uh, giving advice here to other Republicans for how they could beat Trump. After what he heard from the Trump voters, those are some of the things. Like, say, is this what you want to teach your your grandchildren? That's one. Here's another. Uh, During the 2016 campaign, Trump condemned Barack Obama repeatedly for his occasional rounds of golf, promising not to travel at taxpayer expense. What was Trump's record? Close to 300 rounds of golf on his own courses in just four years, costing hardworking taxpayers roughly $150 million in additional security. This is
2: magical thinking. I mean, I love the piece. Like, I wish that the world was the way that Frank Luntz depicts it in this piece, where they're like, well, that's really true. Donald Trump really did play a lot of golf. But I don't really know. Why I mean, don't they care? You know, they I mean, they cared so much
1: about Barack Obama. Th- I, but, this,
2: but this, again, like there needs to be someone who's uh, who's the anti-Trump who has that kind of personality, right? Ron DeSantis does not. There has there's not like a Ronald Reagan figure. There's not like a figure of a more moderate Republican stripe who's able to make those kinds of moral arguments in a way that resonates. And that's again this sort of abdication of of morality in this segment of the population. Well, first, I think it's important to understand why do they
3: hitched themselves to Trump. And why have they since 2015 and 2016? I actually had a lot of conversations during that time with Republican voters who were the base now, who they hadn't gone to the fully, oh, the election was stolen. This was still 2016. And they told me, you know, part of it is a systemic problem. That Republicans and Democrats, every election, come and say, vote for me and I'm going to fix all your problems. And then when they vote for them, which is a very sacred thing to give someone, your vote. When they vote for them, they don't feel any tangible results. And you see a lot of portions of the country that we had terrible policy planning because we knew we were shifting from a manufacturing economy to a consumer economy, and these people were left behind economically. And they felt abused. Abuse was a word that I heard repeatedly. And the way they felt by voting for Donald Trump, when they see the establishment and the media, the big boogeymen of our age these days, reacting and saying this is horrific, how he behaves, they feel when they vote for Trump, it's them being able to get back and get even and give some abuse back. And that is scary. And the other thing is, with Frank Luntz's piece, I agree with Jay. It is pie in the sky. It's not going to happen. We saw this in 2016. Jeb Bush tried to do policy. He tried to talk about your grandkids. Same with John Kasich. Where are they now? Nowhere. And Donald Trump became president, and he's running again. But the one blessing is the only Republican Joe Biden can defeat in 2024 is Donald Trump.
1: Maybe. I mean, you don't know that, do you?
3: I think that Joe Biden's low poll numbers, I think the dissatisfaction with the way the country's going, inflation, economy being the biggest issue, and while things are slightly improving, it's not good for Biden, when you get, a, if it were a Nikki Haley, even a DeSantis, I think people would be much more willing to vote for them over a Donald Trump.
5: Jessica, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, my only thought is that part, and this is part of us on the media, but I think sometimes we talk about Trump like he can't lose. And he did lose the 2020 election. I think sometimes we talk about it like Trump is this invincible character and you can throw this indictment at him and this and, you know, and that at him and he'll never, you know, his base will love him forever and he'll win and there's nothing we can do to stop him. And then it's like he did lose the 2020 2020 election. You know, he is beatable. And I almost think by kind of adding to this, he is this unstoppable winner, we add to that cult of personality around him.
4: Last last month. I was depressed by Frank Luntz's piece because he was seen to be seeding the Republican Party of the populists. That's it. It's populism now, and that is it. That works. As I talked to a number of these people um, during the 2016 election, I was at a union hall in which they took the Bernie picture down to replace it with Trump. Quite literally did this in Indiana because they hated TPP. They hated Hillary Clinton saying that was the gold standard. They hated free trade. They wanted somebody to pay attention to them for once. Donald Trump did and then did absolutely nothing about it and waged a pointless and fruitless trade war that nobody gained from. And I see in that Frank Lentz piece that that kind of those Reagan ideas of the free market, good Lord, those are gone.
1: Friends, thank you very much. Now we have to get to this peculiar story. The Dalai Lama asked a young boy to suck his tongue. And it's caught on video. My panel's going to tackle this next, whether they want to or not. (laughs) The Dalai Lama, the Tibetan spiritual leader, is apologizing after a video shows him kissing a young boy on the mouth at a spiritual service in India and then asking the boy to suck his tongue.
2: Then, I think, finally, here also. (laughs) And suck my tongue.
1: (laughs) I'm back now with my very eager panel to talk about this. Jay, you've met the Dalai Lama many times. Have you such a song?
2: I have not. Uh, the Dalai Lama is a very playful human being. And we may see this in a weird, kind of gross, sexualized way. But this is about as sexual as a bowl of plain rice. There is nothing sexual erotic, or erotic happening in this encounter, as you can see by the reaction of the people who were there. Uh, Tibetan culture just has different boundaries around we see the tongue as it's what we kiss with it's sexualized it's this and of course that this is offensive to us as it should be. Uh, It's not seen that way in Tibetan culture. This is this is a part of the body. It's something playful. It was clearly a mistake. The apology was was in order. This was clearly something that was at best, you know, insensitive to how this would be seen by a large swath of the world population. But it seems clear from the video, and look, I'm biased. I mean, the, the Dalai Lama is one of my spiritual heroes. I have met him. Being in his presence is is really one of the most powerful experiences I've had in my life. And the aura of loving kindness that he has is evident even here, where he's being playful in a way that in Western culture would certainly be inappropriate.
1: But, I mean, part of also what we're picking up on is the boy doesn't want to do it. He's taking the boy's head. I mean, part of, we're just sort of reading the body language here. I'll take your word for it that that it's seen differently there culturally, but the boy doesn't seem to be wanting to participate in this.
2: Well, I don't know. The boy, look, the boy's face is appropriately is, is blanked out. We have no idea what his facial expression was. I don't see that in the body language. I just see a kind of a weird moment. And again, look, this is an eighty-something, you know, year old spiritual leader who's been celibate for his entire life. Unlike, you know, we see this. We see a, a religious figure in a, in a position of power, and we read it through our lens. We're scarred by by generations of Catholic Church, Catholic church sexual scandals and by abuses by spiritual teachers of all varieties, including some of my my fellow rabbis in the Jewish tradition. And we see that through that lens, as well we should. Uh, But that's not necessarily the lens that a different culture might see this interaction through.
1: Anybody have any other thoughts?
3: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I would just say that, you know, I get that there are different culture issues, but shouldn't the Lama have read this boy's body language? Watching that video, I saw the boy recoil and seem unsure. Yes, we didn't get to see his face. Maybe he was smiling. But at the same time, the Lama should have also been respectful there. And I have very much enjoyed the Lama and his teachings. I think he is a powerful force in the world. But what happened was weird. And then from a crisis communication standpoint, which is my bread and butter these days, uh, I thought they absolutely bungled it. The apology, it, it, it seemed like a very breezy apology. Okay, I'll yes. read it. I'll
1: read it. His Holiness wishes to apologize to the boy and his family, as well as his many friends across the world, for the hurt his words may have caused. His Holiness often teases people he meets in an innocent and playful way, even in public and before cameras. He regrets the incident.
3: It wasn't just his words; it was
4: his actions, and that they should have also said. I, I didn't know he was called the Lama. Is that what you call him, Either. the Lama? I think right? His Holiness. Not really. Okay, the Lama. So I shouldn't say that. No, his okay, the, 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 his holiness. Well, I, I don't believe in it. So he's like, the Dalai oh, Lama. Yeah, the Dalai Lama, him. Uh, I know it's not sexual. Can I not overly intellectualize this and just say it's kind of gross? Sure. It, that When he says to the little boy, do you want to suck my tongue? I just, you know, kind of want to change the channel. Yeah.
2: I mean, having <laughs> raised a, a child, you know, my daughter's five years old now. You know, we had to set boundaries around what's appropriate for strangers to do with my child's face in on the subway in New York City. People reach up and do all kinds of non-consensual touching that we felt was not appropriate—you know, squeezing her cheeks and do this and doing that—and and, and you see it all the time. And and I think it is something that, as parents, we want to be sensitive to. And it's not unique to this particular interaction. This this is something that is true in our own culture as well, just in different ways.
5: Yeah. No, it, it definitely made me uncomfortable to watch that. Um, can't deny that. You know, maybe there was a cultural context in which it was appropriate. It was, a little un- it was uncomfortable to watch, for sure. But I think you're kind of touching on this larger point that children so oftentimes, especially in our society, don't have any bodily autonomy. They aren't able to say no when they don't want to be touched. The idea is, oh, you have to give grandma a hug, you have to give grandma a kiss. You know, you're not allowed to have control over your own body. So I think maybe we can have that conversation now just kind of looking at this. But
1: really helpful. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for giving us a different lens through which to look at it because it's a little startling. Thank you very much. All right. If you missed Saturday Night Live, you have to see their cold open that somehow combines Donald Trump and the Last Supper. That's next. Saturday Night Live's cold open this weekend went full Holy Day humor, somehow combining Donald Trump, Jesus Christ, and the Last Supper.
7: Many people are saying we're very similar. (laughs) We're both very tall, very popular, and both, frankly, white Americans. Jesus did some incredible things, some would call them miracles, in terms of fish and with regard to bread, a lot of fish and bread, you know, he rose from the dead on the third day, I would have done it faster, possibly two, possibly two days, I think we could have done it a lot faster, he had a good mind for business, water into wine, pure profit, And he had big, big rallies, just like me, and a lot of his followers got in big, big trouble, just like mine. All because I told them exactly what Jesus would have said. Get very violent and start a war. And I've even got my very own Judas, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis came to me, tears in his eyes. He said, help me, Mr. Trump. I'm gonna lose my election. So I very generously pretended to like him, and then he did a Judas, and now he can't even get the gaze out of Disney World. It's an awful <laughs> shame. Look at these guys back here, huh? They just have to sit here frozen while I talk. Can you believe that? <laughs> Mr. Jesus, quite a guy, but now people are saying perhaps I'm even better than Jesus because I'm a self-made billionaire, and Christ was, let's call it what it is, a Nepo baby, okay?
1: Somebody please give him an Emmy or a Nobel Peace Prize. All right, in the next hour, we've got something new for you. Some of our favorite reporters are here to peel back the curtain on how they get their scoops and what stories they're working on. They are in position, ready to go. I will be joining them in that chair momentarily. We will be right back. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to CNN Tonight. We're trying something different for this hour. We have some of our very favorite reporters here to share with us the inside scoop on what stories they're working on this week. Our first segment deals with the topic of abortion and the battle over the abortion medication. Let's bring in our reporter, Eva McKend. We also have Sarah Fisher here, Alana Treen, And Rahel Solomon. So, Eva, I'll start with you because this is your story this week. I know that you've been out on the campaign trail, um, talking to voters, listening to various politicians. Where are we with this? So, I think that the challenge for Republicans, they've suffered
8: many losses in this space. Uh, is that from a messaging standpoint, they are in the same place that they were a year ago without a cogent argument. You have certain Republicans calling for more extreme laws and others saying this has gone too far. We are losing races across the country. I think that there was a, a lack of uh, acknowledgement and, and slowly we're, we're seeing Republicans sound the alarm of how galvanizing this issue is for Democrats. I was out on the campaign trail in the battleground state of Pennsylvania last year. And it, it's not only young women that were concerned about the future of reproductive health care in this country. It was young men as well standing online to get into the John Fetterman rally, now Senator Fetterman's uh, rally. And I approached a young man, college student, asked him what was his number one issue. And he told me, you know, I'm really concerned about my mom, my friends, my sister. And so I I think that Republicans underestimated the strength of that argument that Democrats have been able to wage and are
1: going to continue to wage, Alison. And yet it's not like certain judges and in certain pockets that they're backing off this. I mean, there was the Roe versus Wade bombshell. And then there's been more things since then, including what we saw even Friday night. So it's not like... They've decided that they've gone too far. Some of these Republicans, I'm thinking of the judges now, are keeping their foot on the gas of this issue.
8: Well, absolutely. It's inconsistent. And from a Republican perspective, it is the official position uh, according to a resolution that they adopted, it is the official position of the RNC to for Republican lawmakers to push for uh, the uh, most, uh, I think, restrictive laws possible. But when you speak to different Republicans, Congresswoman uh, Nancy Mace on our air today, um, she is uh, concerned about how far they are taking this, because uh, no matter what they do, they can't escape the fact that. Their position is
1: not in line with most Americans. Well, that was very interesting yeah. to hear Congressman Nancy Mace, Republican, sharing the same position with AOC, basically, mm-hmm. uh, particularly about this abortion medication. So let's listen to them on our air.
9: Even if we might disagree, uh, it's not up to us to decide as legislators or even, you know, as the court system that whether or not this is the right drug to use or not.
10: So you think the FDA should ignore this?
0: I would. Yes, I would. The Biden administration should ignore uh, this ruling. Isn't that interesting? Oh, it's so interesting. And it's also very frustrating for Republicans. I think this has been very tricky territory for them to navigate. I mean, abortion ever since the Dobbs ruling last year has not been a winning issue for them. And we clearly saw that, as Eva said, during the 2022 midterm elections. And I think one of the things they were hoping to do was jump on what Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was saying, what Senator Ron Wyden was saying, both progressives saying, just ignore the ruling altogether. They are like, maybe we can go to that and say that this is a dangerous precedent to ignore a ruling. But then they have someone in their own party coming on this morning and telling Caitlyn... Uh, we should ignore it. And so there's definitely a divide in the party. They don't know how to address it. I, I know that uh, Senator Lindsey Graham was on the Sunday shows this week, and he was one of very few Republicans to actually speak out on the issue. And he said we need to portray our messaging as more reasonable and more practical and not go you know, to the far right on this and show that we're not trying to, to blow up abortion across the country and make like it Senator totally Graham has legal. has been all over on this. He has. And he's also been pressured, though, a lot by different outside groups like SBA List and others. Um, But I think he also recognizes, as Eva said, this is a very difficult path for Republicans to navigate. And they can't come on too strong to voters because then it'll be really damaging for them in elections.
8: It's it's a foil, right, because Democrats want to argue for a long time that Republicans are too extreme on a whole host of issues. And, you know, now they have this one sort of out front and they can lead on this and saying, look, you know, they South Carolina Republicans flirting with. And this is intellectually inconsistent, but flirting with uh, the death penalty in certain cases, uh, just a-, a proposal there. Right. As as an illustration of how pro-life they are. And so, um, you know, Democrats really want to have this conversation.
1: In fact, Sarah, um, the Wall Street Journal called this a political gift for Democrats.
10: I mean, it kind of is in the sense that if you look back to the last midterm election cycle after the Dobbs decision... Democrats were throwing their hands up in the air saying this is a layup for us. This is the easiest way to galvanize our party. And it's just a repeat of that. I'm surprised to Elena's point that Republicans are letting it get to this point because it seems like we're far away from 2024, but Allison, we are not. Already you have Donald Trump buying ads. You have a lot of candidates who are starting to talk about throwing their hat in the ring. Competition with DeSantis is heating up. The fact that Republicans have let Democrats take this issue... Very quickly it's going to go to the voters in 2024 is astonishing to me. Mm-hmm.
1: Rahel what's happening on the business side of this? What's happening with drug makers? How are they tackling this topic?
9: well, it's what they're saying and also what we think they're actually feeling. So what we 're hearing from different statements today is some say that, look, I mean, this creates an era of uncertainty, others saying that this creates a dangerous precedent. I think the reality is that drug makers are very concerned that if something like this was allowed to stand, What implications that could have for all sorts of drugs, right? And so I spoke to one uh, investor, uh, Les Funtlider. He's a healthcare portfolio manager and also a professor of public health at Columbia. And he said, look, all of the scenarios are not good for investors of pharmaceutical companies. He said, also, there are geopolitical implications because you have to consider that America does the best in drug development, right? If you start tinkering with that, that could have all sorts of economic implications, including for job creation. So it is the here and now of what this means uh, currently for women and uh, men around the world and around the country, rather, but also what it means for other pharmaceutical companies, what it means for potentially vaccines, what it means for cancer research. I mean, it really could have broad implications And so we're not seeing it really reflected in the stocks just yet. And, you know, as I was told earlier, it's because I don't think investors have fully come to terms with the implications of what it could mean, but it's certainly not something that the, the pharmaceutical companies want to see, which is part of the reason why we saw that uh, reaction with the, the
1: letters that we've seen today. I don't think we've even thought about that, just the, the the repercussions in terms of the development of other drugs that manufacturers wouldn't be interested if they think that they're just going to be shut down politically. That's interesting.
9: Well, and that's something that was, that was something that was reported in one of the letters. Um, Pfizer CEO was included in this letter, but just that it could discourage investment opportunities in the future, right? I mean, and you also have to consider just the uh, amount of money that would have to go into defending some of these drugs, right? You think about how expensive it is for pharmaceutical companies already to sort of develop these drugs in terms of the research and the trials. But then there is also the added expense potentially now of perhaps having to defend the drugs. So all sorts of economic implications here that haven't fully been appreciated yet. But I think there's a real concern about whether uh, we will actually get there.
1: Guys, thank you very much for all those angles. Great to hear all of your reporting. Okay, so everyone stay with me. What is going on with Elon Musk? His antics over the weekend are potentially threatening to erode Twitter's brand value, whatever that is at the moment. So we're going to look at what he's up to now. Elon Musk is continuing his antics at Twitter this weekend, labeling the BBC's Twitter account as government funded media. The same treatment now applies to NPR, which Musk labeled state affiliated media just days before. It's the latest move as Musk pits Twitter against some of the biggest media businesses on his platform. And it's far from the only eye-raising moves he's made this weekend. So how much turmoil can Twitter take, or more turmoil, I guess I should say? We're back with our reporting panel. So, Sarah, (laughs) help me understand this. Elon Musk is waging war against major news organizations. Aren't journalists like the bread and butter of Twitter?
10: Yes, as are the media companies that they work for, which is why this is such a high-profile scandal. And the question becomes, are media and news organizations going to take it? Up until this point, it became abundantly clear that news needed Twitter more than Twitter needed news. But these latest actions that you just laid out, labeling the BBC and NPR as government funded but not throwing that label on other actual government funded media outlets like the VOA, these things are starting to really agitate the news media. You saw NPR saying that they were no longer going to tweet until they got to the bottom of this. Some news organizations have said that they would pause ads, although a lot haven't. I think, Allison we're starting to reach a little bit of a breaking point, but this isn't the end of this fight. Also, isn't
1: he also easing restrictions on Russian government accounts? Well,
10: I mean, whose side is he on? I think part of that, too, is just that he's laid off so many people. You know, before Elon Musk got in, there were 7,500 people that worked at Twitter. You had hundreds that worked on trust and safety who also worked on things like verifying accounts and whether or not they're attributed to government or state-funded media. A lot of those teams have been gutted. And so I think a lot of the lack of consistency across the board, labeling Chinese and Russian state media the same way you would with the BBC and NPR, has just as much to do with the fact that Twitter is just not as well equipped to keep the platform running as it used to be. And by the way, that's an inherent risk. Because we might think, oh, Twitter is just another social media platform. It's not. When there's a major hurricane in your town, when there's a shooting at your kid's school, Most people go to Twitter to look for emergency responders and authoritative information. Twitter is more than just a social media app. It's a digital town square. And so these changes
0: matter. Do you think, Sarah, that journalists or media companies would ever quit Twitter over this?
10: It's a good question. I've been taking screenshots on my phone of every ad that I see media companies running. I have well over a dozen media companies. That includes The Athletic, which is owned by The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal... The Economist, Forbes, Fortune, Axios, my employer, we're all running these ads. And the reason being is that they're really effective. Now, if journalists say they want to quit Twitter, we've seen that in the past. Most of them end up coming back because it's too effective of a platform to share their reporting. Mm. I think it would have to be something extraordinarily drastic, something that Elon Musk did that would be... No question considered awful from both sides of the aisle. We haven't quite seen that yet, although he's come pretty close.
1: I broke up with Twitter publicly. <laughs> I, like, wrote it a Dear John letter, and then I came back. And then you were back.
10: <laughs> and then I came back. But I mean, it
1: took me about 18 months, but I came back. But for all of you, how much do you rely on Twitter for your reporting?
9: I rely on it more to actually get information than I use it to disseminate information. But I will argue, look, when something big is happening, I mean, when SVB collapsed, I was able to reach founders because of Twitter, because they were tweeting on Twitter. So you can't argue that it is an an effective tool for
1: sure. And are you able to see into... How much visibility at this point as a business, you have into Twitter? So that's the tricky part. So as a business correspondent, I mean, the
9: the interactions that I had with Twitter tended to be around when it would report, right? Public companies are required to report every quarter. And that just gives you a sense of what, how they did the previous quarter, but also what they expect. And then they also take questions from the investment community, from the analyst community. Those have gone away, right? So we no longer have that access. But to Sarah's point, I mean, their media relations team has been up. Demolished. I mean, you tell me, are there
10: people still working at media relations? Um, because if in you general. email the Twitter press inbox, you will get an automatic reply of a poop emoji. <laughs> that is Elon Musk's official response to the press. So that tells you everything you need to know. Right. But in terms of finding out what's happening at Twitter, I mean, the best places at this part, at this point to look are third-party analysts. You know, Fidelity continues to mark Twitter down. That gives you a little bit of a sense of how they see this business going. And then also other Independent investors. I mean, I broke a story a few weeks ago that Ari Emanuel's Endeavor Mm -hmm. was the only private investor that we know of that has invested in Twitter this year. Those are the Mm -hmm. folks that know what's going on, at least to an extent, at Mm -hmm. Twitter, other than the employees, of course, because Elon Musk is out there pitching them to be a part of the company.
8: We, We haven't seen this before, though. Someone with such a powerful platform be in a position to publicly weaponize that platform
10: against people he doesn't like. Like, wh- where else has this happened? We don't see it happen because in most mediums, we have regulators that can enforce rules and laws. You know, the FCC dictates what happens in broadcast, newspapers, etc. We don't have an Internet regulator. You know, the FTC can tell you if you have what's called false commercialization, like a diet pill ad that doesn't work. But they're not going to be able to go in and tell Twitter to stop doing this or that. So don't expect rules to come anytime soon. It is the Wild West, and it will continue to be the Wild West Well, Congress, what we were just talking about, (laughs) cannot agree on anything. I was going to say,
0: a group of people who still love Twitter and love it even more under the helm of Elon Musk are Republicans. They are salivating over his new leadership. What what Um, do they like so much about it? Well, they think that he embraces the freedom of speech and the First Amendment. And we've seen that through— Ironically. Yeah. I mean, they've seen that through a series of their hearings. They think that he's going to be key to helping turn over a lot of documents that you want related to the Hunter Biden investigation. That's a totally different subject. But they think that he's more willing to work with them. I mean— one of the biggest complaints of Republicans for the past several years now has been that big tech and these big media or in social media companies have been politicized against them. And they see someone like Elon Musk, who's just kind of throwing out the rule book on a lot of these things, as one of them. And they're embracing it. Can we take a moment
9: to just appreciate the fact that it's been a year? April 2022, I believe it was, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, is when Elon Musk First said, you know, I think I might buy Twitter. And mm-hmm. then he said, actually, never mind, there were too many bots. And then he said, actually, maybe I'm gonna buy it. And then a judge said, actually you are going to buy <laughs> it, right? So we have been on a really wild ride, even if you are not a reporter, if you are just a user of Twitter. It's
10: been a it's been a strange year. But just to prove his chokehold over this industry, we're talking about it a year later. It still continues to be one of the hottest headlines. It's a big story. It impacts 220 million daily active users, at least that was at the time when Elon bought it. It's still something that's newsy. Yeah. And but that's, also, isn't that also partly because he's an
1: irrational actor? Totally. He does things that are irrational. Totally. And, and we report on it as though it's a regular
10: business because we don't see things like this it, from CEO. It reminds me of the Trump presidency so much from that regard. It is so spontaneous and so unpredictable that everything he says and does becomes news. Because Because it's new. Wouldn't you agree that that's why a lot
9: of people love him, right? I mean, Elon Musk is a polarizing figure. You either really don't like him
8: or you love him. And I think the people who love him, they love that about him, that you just really never know what you're going to get. But most Americans are still not on there. You know, when I travel across the country, people are not talking about Twitter. So I would say that a lot of the currency still, especially if folks are concerned about their following, are in places like D.C. and New York and and maybe not not in a lot of other places. That's a good reality
1: check. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right, ladies, stand by if you would, because the 2022 races didn't quite turn out how Republicans had hoped. So what are they doing to have a better showing in 2024? Elena is going to tell us. This is her story next. Senate Republicans looking ahead to the 2024 primaries and CNN political reporter Alana Treen, along with CNN's Manu Raju, have new reporting on how the GOP hopes to come back from its 2022 political losses. Our entire reporting panel is back to help tackle this. Okay, so, Alana, uh,
0: Carrie Lake wants a redo. Is that what we're hearing? Uh, we think so. So uh, our reporting shows she met with the National or the NRSC, I should just say. That's how everyone knows at the National Republican Senatorial Committee um, back in February to map out what a potential Senate race could look like. And they had one key message for her, which was shift away from some of the divisive rhetoric you used on the trail to become governor. Uh, Meaning move the away laws from, about
1: election. Yes. Move
0: away from fraud? the rhetoric around a stolen election. Um And that's kind of their message for a lot of these candidates. I think the key priority for Republicans in 2024 is to avoid the debacle that they saw last cycle, which was having weak candidates emerge from contested primaries only to peter out and collapse in the general election. And that's something that Steve Daines, the new chairman of the NRSC, along with Mitch McConnell, are hyper-focused on. But with Carrie Lake... Is that just so baked into her DNA? Can she pivot away from that? Well, that's the other thing, too, that's funny about this, is someone like Carrie Lake, I feel like, could run or potentially will run against the establishment, against Mitch McConnell, and that'll only strengthen her. I mean, that's her brand. Um, And she's very Trumpian, you know? Some people said she was more Trump than Trump himself. And so it's going to be very hard, I think, to detach that image from her. But it is something that I think across the board and not just in Arizona. I mean that's just one of several landmines that Republicans are trying to navigate in these Senate races. You have Ohio, you have Montana, you have West Virginia, Pennsylvania. All of these places where they know that they need to have candidates that can win in a primary and also win in a general. And this
9: can we can we stick with Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania is something that always tends to make national implications, has national implications and I'm a little biased. I am from the great state of Pennsylvania, from Philly. I'm curious to know, how does that apply to a candidate like Doug Mastriano, who mm-hmm. has said that he is preying on whether he might also throw his hat into the next Senate race? I mean, he's coming off of a governor's race where he lost pretty badly where he really struggled in terms of fundraising and you have to wonder, especially for a Senate race in Pennsylvania, it's always the most expensive in history. It's always among the top expensive top most expensive in history. And so I mean you gotta need to know how to fundraise.
0: Well he's the exact kind of candidate that these Republican groups, the establishment groups, Republican leadership are saying that they're worried about. Someone like Doug Mastriano, I think, really scares them. Um, and that's why we are told that the NRSC is actually rallying behind Dave McCormick, another failed Senate candidate. He obviously lost to Ahmed um, Oz when Trump endorsed him. But um, he's the kind of candidate that they want, that they think maybe could appeal to a broader Base of voters, a broader group of Republicans, and actually win in a general. Um, And of course, Mastriano. I mean, we just talked about Carrie Lake being Trumpier than Trump. Mastriano is another one of those candidates who ran on very divisive rhetoric to the very far right, um, considered by many people a fringe candidate. And he's the kind of candidate that I think a lot of Republicans, and I know a lot of Republicans. I talked to many. Uh, Republicans in the Senate for the story. They said that he's the kind of candidate that they want to avoid next to me, cycle. To me, this really marks a very clear shift in strategy because Senator
8: Danes has sort of been telegraphing this for a while, that candidate quality is going to be top of mind and that they are going to do uh, what they can to thwart uh, who they view as extreme candidates. But it doesn't come without risk. You know, this type of intervention can really sort of deflate the base. Mm -hmm. It can make certain folks disengage. And then you also run the risk that some of these folks might go on to be successful and be your colleagues in the Senate or, um, you know, in uh, the House or elsewhere or, you know, see them around in other places. So I think all of that goes into this calculation of how much to weigh into these races. But I guess they are making this gamble because of the losses that they suffered in 2022.
10: But going back to the losses, this is what I don't understand. If you're Carrie Lake, your Trump ties led you to a lost election last year during the midterm. So why would you want to replicate that again heading into 2024? What's her logic there?
0: Well, she does still argue that her governor's race was a stolen election and that the outcome is you know, disputable. Um, but she has massive name recognition. I will say also I did speak with some people who are advising Carrie Lake. And they told me that dur- during that conversation with the NRSC in February, she said she recognized that. Running for Senate would be very different or a different set of issues is how they described it to me than when you run a governor's race. And so stolen elections and that type of talk isn't necessarily something that a senator could fix. So I do think she's actually picking up on some of that. We'll see if that actually goes into practice if she does run. Um, But they saw success running on the Trump base. And I think they are hoping it maybe this time it'll work out. But even if we get Carrie Lake 2.0,
8: no one is going to forget, you know, all of the election lie stuff.
1: I mean, who knows? I don't know the answer to that, how quickly voters forget. But, but tell me this. So as the, Sen- the Senate uh, is preaching to be, you know, less extreme to mm-hmm. Carrie Lake or Doug Mastriano, uh, in the House, it seems like what Republicans are focused on are investigations. Mm-hmm. So they're talking about investigating Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan D.A. They're talking about investigating. Well, today they called the FBI director Christopher Wray. Mm-hmm. And is that what voters are wanting? endless investigations
0: now? I think it's such a clear example of how different the House is to the Senate. I mean, the inside joke on the Hill is that the House is the wild, wild west compared to the Senate. Um, And it's because you have so many more members and members who are willing to just, you know, go to the far left, the far right, more to the extremes, while senators tend to be a little bit more, I don't want to say, focused and sometimes uh, a little less fiery with their rhetoric, but it's true. Um, and I do think that a lot of House members as well when, I mean, they spent so many months during the minority planning out these investigations, plotting their targets. It is interesting to see a lot of these investigations so far have been them kind of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, but we are starting to see some of these first subpoenas, and you're right with that. Today, we saw the, the Judiciary Chairman, Jim Jordan, subpoena FBI Director Ray. There's been other subpoenas now starting to come out through these committees. Um, and so they're really kind of digging now into the meat of what they're hoping to investigate, but, it's something that I know they've talked to Donald Trump's team about. they talked to Donald Trump about themselves. And they're still hoping that they will keep him as a key ally-, ally as they head into 2024.
1: I mean, I just will point out the obvious, that that's what they're focused on today when we have yet another mass shooting in the country and where now the people of Kentucky are grieving. And even the governor said that he lost his closest friend, one of his closest friends today. And yet, you know, that's not what... Congress is working on.
10: Well, I think in the House in particular, you're running a new race every two years compared to the Senate every six. And so you're constantly thinking about your reelection campaign above everything else. I mean, this is a 10,000-foot conversation we should be having about is the system broken to get things done in the modern day? Because clearly we're not seeing any reform, even though to the point about the governor, there is bipartisan energy right now around gun reform, but nobody's optimistic anything will get done. And I've
8: asked Kentucky Republicans, because I used to cover the Kentucky congressional delegation about this issue all, of their, all the time, and their response would be, well, we are not interested in any of this gun safety legislation because we are matching, matching the will of our voters. Back in our districts, you know, that is not a popular position. But, you know, we
1: are seeing. And was the- that right? Because, you know, when when you talk about to Americans uh, in mass, there is a big support for background checks. As we know, red flag laws are gaining popularity. But in Kentucky, was that not true? Were they were they in sync with their voters? They they, they were. They
8: were. These are really uh, most of the districts, very, very conservative. But, Allison, I think that sentiment will slowly change because we're seeing these incidents happen with such frequency that everyone is impacted. You know, we saw the governor today, the previous governor in Tennessee also impacted. And it's it's everyone is so close to this that after a while, just sort of looking away and
1: saying this isn't in the interest of my voters
8: is not going to be a sufficient response.
1: The mayor of Louisville said today he could appreciate and empathize because he had been the victim of a workplace shooting. It is touching. It's very hard to find people where. Uh, they're not affected by gun violence right now. All right, we're going to move on to the latest economic data, giving all sorts of conflicting signals. Are we headed towards a recession? Are we not? Rahel has been working her sources, and some have surprising things to say about the impacts of the pandemic on the recession. We'll find out what they're saying next. Next. You hear a lot of different things about the economy and if it's doing well or poorly.
3: Labor costs are going to rise to a point where inflation remains a problem and the Fed's going to have to continue to raise interest rates.
7: One of the biggest parts of inflation right now is energy prices. Inflation has been falling, but not at the pace many economists had hoped for.
3: President Biden called it
4: a good jobs report for hardworking Americans with the unemployment rate falling to 3.5 percent. The economy
7: seems maybe we're through the the worst for now. Let's also celebrate the really good news, which is people that want work can find work.
1: All right, CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon is talking to her sources to make sense of all of this. And she says the pandemic might actually have helped create strength in the economy. Rahel, please explain. Okay, so let's start with just the
9: really strong labor market, right? So we just got that jobs report on Friday. Unemployment is at about three and a half percent. That's practically 50-year low. Unemployment for black people, unemployment for women of color, black women, uh, also the lowest it has ever been. So on that side, we're definitely strong, right? We have 9.9 open jobs right now. On that side, we're also strong. Consumer spending, Still kind of hanging in. Right. Part of the reason why consumers are in a much healthier position is because of the pandemic. On the one hand, of course, we had stimulus checks that certainly helped. But on the other, we had what? I mean, a year where we were not going out, we were not shopping, we were not going to restaurants. And so what that actually meant is that folks stayed home. They paid off their credit cards added to their savings accounts. Now, we are starting to see that sort of a whittle down in terms of savings, and that certainly falls along sort of um, income spectrums, right? We're seeing for the lower income spectrum, they're they're, they're blowing through their savings because of inflation. So we have certain things that are sort of working to our favor, right? Companies are still uh, by and large in decent shape. On the other hand... We still have inflation that is at about 6 percent. We'll get some new inflation data on Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday morning it is. We'll get some new inflation data. But we also have the concerns with the banks, which was probably the last thing that we needed, because even though we are still uh, coming from a decent place of strength, we're still vulnerable, right? We're still sort of dealing with uh, this period of really historic inflation. We're dealing with uh, the Fed who's raised rates almost five percent in about a year's time right so there are certainly a lot of things happening that are not necessarily great news but we are still coming from a place of strength and here's hoping that we can sort of get to the other side of this without a, a recession
10: but that's sort of back and forth that you're talking about where on one hand we're doing great and on the other hand we're not yeah. is creating a ton of uncertainty and that is having a negative impact i cover industries where there's a lot of deal making so you think about the media and technology sectors Big business is holding back on deals right now. They can't even get financing. And it's because the uncertainty has made bankers scared. It's made advertisers scared. It's slowed so many of these different sectors that we cover. And when people talk about when this is going to be alleviated, when things are going to go back to normal, some economists that we talk to say expect Q3, Q4 for things to bounce back, in part because we don't have as bad of comps compared to last year because it was so bad at the back end of the year. But then you talk to others who say this might be our new normal. And that is freaking a lot of people out that I work with on the business side. I think it's a fair point.
9: I mean, I think this period of uncertainty is certainly something that we're all coming to terms with. One economist, one prominent economist said on Twitter, you know, if you're not a little confused about this economy, you're not paying attention, right? So that made me feel a little bit better. But no, essentially what you have is, and look, I've talked to CFOs, I've talked to analysts who say, you know, in this environment, you cannot afford to not prepare for a recession, right? Because if in fact we do see a recession, it would perhaps be the most anticipated recession of all time, so we're all talking about it. Many people are concerned about what this will look like. And so for companies who are managing their budgets, they're starting to proactively respond, right, to your point about pulling back on advertising, because why wouldn't you? We're all sort of forecasting it, right? And I should say that there is this element of um, a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If we start to uh, really feel like a recession is imminent, well, then maybe we start to act like it. And we still pull back on our consumer. We pull back on our spending and that could create a vicious cycle. So, you know, look, I think, you know, when I talk to economists, when I, I talk to Mark Zandi, who we just heard in that clip there, and I asked, look, what's your advice for people at home who hear three and a half percent unemployment, but, you know, recession fears? And he said, look, things are fine still. The labor market certainly is fine. You don't necessarily need to run for the
0: bunker, but like, be cautious, be prudent. Lana, what do lawmakers say about this? Well, inflation and spending and the economy are still the number one issue for Republicans and a lot of voters nationwide. And I do think, I mean, we all probably feel it personally. Things are very expensive right now. We do feel the impact of inflation. Yes, gas prices are down from where they were at their peak uh, last summer, but things are still very expensive right now. And that is the key message that Republicans are driving. I will also say a huge concern of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle is the impending debt limit and how there's been no negotiations at all between the White House and Republicans on the Hill to try and deal with this. And that's something that I think is scaring a lot of people, a lot of economists, too, that I speak with who say we do not, no one wants a repeat of what happened in 2011 and 2012 uh, when they came very, very close to not having a debt limit deal. And they want to avoid that again. I think they will. We still have some time before they really need to start freaking out to the level that I think people are worried about. But it's coming up very quickly. A lot of the estimates right now put that at around some point in June. I feel like every year that I report on this, they play chicken up to the 11th hour. They do. So I'm trying not to fall
1: for it this time, but it is— The closer we get. get The closer closer we get to the S. states. Yes, agreed. So are, are you hearing the same stuff on the campaign trail? Yeah, I,
8: I think that voters, sometimes they can't hear anything else when they have all of this anxiety about their finances, about the economy. And sometimes we spend so much time talking about Republicans, Democrats, who's making the best argument, you know, what argument is resonating with voters. But we forget about those who are not engaged at all. They are so withdrawn from this entire process and conversation because they're broke, right? I I met a young woman in Georgia last year, and she said she had never voted. She didn't trust politicians. She was just trying to make ends meet. She was leaving Georgia to connect with friends in North Carolina because her job at a fast food restaurant, you know, she couldn't afford the rent anymore. And so, uh, yes, so economic anxieties are like the whole thing. And um, yeah, and you can't, it's really hard to talk about anything else to voters if you aren't connecting on their, their bottom line.
10: Can I just follow up with you on that? Let's say we're in the same place in 2024 that we are now, which is, it's still uncertain. You know, jobs are good, inflation is high. Does that ding whichever Democratic candidate, Biden, whoever, in 2024? Or do you think that it's not going to be as big of an issue for them as it was potentially in the last election?
8: It's hard to say. I think it will be based on how people feel. It, it really, it's it's a very sort of... Uh, I think, circumstantial argument. It's all based on how people feel.
1: Thank you, ladies, very much. All right, what are the big scoops for tomorrow? We've got tomorrow's news tonight for you. That's next. All right, we're back with our stellar panel of reporters. So while we have them, let's get the scoop on tomorrow's news. We call it Tomorrow's News Tonight. So you get a little sneak peek. Uh, Sarah, okay, tell us what you're working on for tomorrow.
10: Oh, so I got one serious one and one fun one. Perfect. Serious one. Donald Trump is, again, in an early start in terms of digital advertising for his 2024 campaign. I saw this in 2019 where he was outspending all of his competitors. I have new data that shows that on digital platforms like Google and Facebook, he's outspending Haley and DeSantis 10 to 1 right now. Huge forecast for the election next year. And the fun thing, Super Mario Bros. movie absolutely destroyed it this weekend. Set records not only for a five-day open, but also for the best opening weekend ever for an animated film or a film based off a video game. I can't wait for the sequel because we know it's going to happen. Have you seen the movie? No, haven't seen it yet. I'm waiting till this weekend. I didn't want to go this past one because the weather was too nice. You're a fan. (laughs) Huge fan. Of course. (laughs) Why why did I ask? (laughs) Uh, Fantastic.
1: Excellent. Okay, Eva, what are you working on? So I am curious to see how much
8: progressives lean on the administration, lean on President Biden to do more on abortion as we see the continuation of the erosion of reproductive um, access uh, on reproductive rights in this country. Uh, we heard Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez I say that the FDA should just ignore. And Nancy Mace and
1: Republican and and Republican
8: and a a moderate Republican as well. But I'm curious to see if that drumbeat rises. I think there was the uh, assumption that House Democrats, you know, since they narrowly lost the majority, they didn't have all that much power anymore. But progressives could still prove to be a thorn in the side of the president. And so I'm curious to see what what they do moving forward. Okay, we'll be watching for that, Alana, What are you working on?
0: Uh, looking at this massive leak of the Pentagon documents, these highly classified, highly sensitive uh, excuse me, highly sensitive documents that you know guarded you know that a lot of the nation's biggest secrets are are in these documents and they ended up on social media. And and it's crazy to me, the Biden administration is scrambling on this. They're still trying to find out how these ended up on Twitter, how these got into the hands of whoever would have leaked them. Um, And there's not a lot of answers. And I know just from talking to a lot of people on the Hill, I spoke with many chairmen, Democratic chairman, Republican chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committees, the Armed Services Committees, and they want answers and they want to have classified briefings. And right now, they're not getting any of them. And I know that... uh, the Department of Defense is looking into this and investigating this. But I think this is going to be a massive story that is not going away. We're going to be learning more in the next coming days. Rahel few big things on my calendar
9: this week. So we get none as fun as Super Mario Brothers, I should say, but we get CPI on Wednesday. That's the consumer price index. That'll give us a sense of what's happening with inflation, right? I mean, this was supposed to be the year of significant declines, according to the Federal Reserve chairman. And so what's the latest picture on inflation? And then Friday is when banking earnings season really begins in earnest. We're going to start to hear from some of the big banks, which, you know, after SVB, after Signature, a lot of attention on what's happening with deposits? Are they stabilized? Are they flowing into some of the too big to to fail banks? Uh, what's happening there? But also in terms of tightening lending standards, perhaps. So a uh, lot to watch on on my beat as well.
1: We look forward to having you all bring all of that to us this week. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Great to have you guys. Thank you. All right. Also, make sure you tune in to CNN this morning tomorrow as the show dives into the complex issue of reparations. In places like San Francisco and how it could be implemented. Thanks so much for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues now.
2: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side, helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature, quiets their snores. Sleep number does that. Sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
6: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking: "Call Me Country." Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com/callmecountry.